Hi, this is Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A podcast. We often talk about new nonfiction books, so while our program is taking a break, we wanted to use this space to introduce you to C-SPAN's newest podcast about books. It's a bi-weekly update on nonfiction books featuring the latest publishing news, bestseller list, book reviews, and short takes with authors. So if you're a nonfiction reader, hope you'll stay around to listen, and if you like what you hear, follow About Books so you don't miss future episodes. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Q&A. On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And welcome to About Books. In this episode, we'll talk to former Democratic Congressman Steve Israel of New York about his opening of a new bookstore. And we'll also chat with author Rich Rubino about his latest book of political trivia. But first, let's start with this week's publishing news. Former President Donald Trump is releasing a book of photos from his time in office. The book is entitled Our Journey Together, and it's being published by a group called Winning Team Publishing, which is co-founded by his son, Donald Trump Jr. It goes on sale December 7th. The New York Times has released its annual list of the 100 notable books of the year. This year's nonfiction titles include Annette Gordon-Reed's On Juneteenth, Carter Malkazian's The American War in Afghanistan, John McWhorter's Woke Racism, Maggie Nelson's On Freedom, and Cotty Martin's the Chancellor, A Look at Angela Merkel. Those are a few of the books on the New York Times Notable Books of 2021. In other news, a memorial to the late English novelist Virginia Woolf is being criticized for its planned location. The statue of the novelist seated on a park bench was to be positioned overlooking the Thames River. Critics argue that Woolf's suicide by drowning in 1941 is a reason to move the memorial to another site. And according to NPD BookScan, print book sales were up close to 12% for the week ending November 13th. Adult nonfiction sales had another strong week, and they're up nearly 7% for the entire year. Well, when a lot of members of Congress leave their seats, they often stay in Washington and do some lobbying. Congressman Steve Israel, who spent 16 years representing Long Island here in Washington, did something completely different. Congressman, what did you do? Uh, Peter, I opened up my own little independent bookstore uh, in a waterfront historic hamlet uh, called Oyster Bay, Long Island, in the shadows of Sagamore Hill, where Theodore Roosevelt lived and and died. Uh, Everything in Oyster Bay is somehow connected to Theodore Roosevelt. And I decided after 16 years in the House of Representatives, uh, it was time to turn the page literally and and start a new chapter. And you even named your bookstore Theodore's. It's named Theodore. Uh, I'm in the bookstore now. We just opened uh, over the past week. And across the street uh, from me is the, the building where Theodore Roosevelt had his summer executive offices when he was president. Down the street is the cemetery where he's buried. Uh, If you make a left at his cemetery, drive for a mile, you'll reach the home uh, that he purchased, built, lived in, and died in. 
uh, around the corner is the drugstore where reporters uh, used to use the, the pay phone. Roosevelt had his own phone installed in his home in Sagamore Hill. But when reporters who were covering him needed to file a story, the only telephone in town was the public phone at the drugstore. And that's right around the corner from me. And so this bookstore, which emphasizes history and current affairs, has uh, is, is opened in the spirit of Theodore Roosevelt. Well, as somebody who chaired the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, was it a tough call to name it after a Republican president? <laughs> I tell you what. He's buried uh, just adjacent to my house, and I think I can hear him spinning, spinning in his grave when I walk my dog past it. Uh, th- this is not the Republican Party that Theodore Roosevelt would have would have recognized. Um, you know, Oyster Bay is uh, a notoriously independent place. It votes for Republicans. It votes for Democrats. And so we have been very careful to curate a selection of about 10,000, 11,000 books Uh, that will satisfy curiosities uh, on both ends of the ideological spectrum. Congressman Israel, what was the biggest hurdle to opening this bookstore? Well, I had always wanted to do this, Peter. Um, When I was in Congress, uh, I had this passion for uh, bookstores wherever I would travel, any congressional district that I would travel to as the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, my staff uh, had instructions to let me know where the local bookstore was. Uh, and so that was my relief. I'd do some fundraising, uh, meet with candidates, do some press conferences, and then find a local bookstore. So I always wanted to do this. Uh, but market conditions weren't right. But bookstores, uh, you know, over the past uh, decade, decade and a half uh, have have really been going out of business. Uh, and so um, I made a decision that uh, despite the trends, uh, I I wanted to give this uh, a shot. Now, mostly as a result of COVID, downtowns in America have have flourished. People have wanted to go get out of their homes, maybe not go to a shopping mall, but go downtown. And small bookstores have done okay because people want to feel a book again. They want to they want to you know smell the book and be able to turn the pages. And so I I waited for conditions to improve. The biggest hurdle in all of that uh, was doing in three months what it usually takes, actually doing in six weeks what it usually takes four months to do. A typical bookstore should take about four months to develop and open. My team and I did this in six weeks because we wanted to take advantage of the holiday uh, marketplace. Uh, And so the biggest hurdle was just ordering books and finding the right location and hiring an exceptional team and doing all the things that any small business must do in order to open and be profitable. Now, as a small independent bookstore, what's the reception you got from publishers? Well, I must say uh, I'm, I'm most surprised by two things. Number one, the extraordinary response by by publishers they have been all the the major publishers have been incredibly supportive they they mentored us uh they they helped us through this process uh they made it uh, as easy as they could for us to order the books by the way ordering uh books for an opening inventory pretty tough deal suddenly you have to be able to receive uh and catalog and shelf 
thousands and thousands of books. And so the publishing companies have been very cooperative. The second thing that surprises me uh, has been the response that we've received from the community. People are walking in this door thanking us for opening up a bookstore uh, in a downtown. And so the combination of the booksellers, the publishers, and the book buyers, that response has been just off the charts, I have to say. Now, who curated the list of 11, 12,000 books that you have in stock? Uh, so uh, it's a great question. A, uh, a, a wholesaler and distributor uh, helped give us what's called our uh, opening store inventory. And so they have all sorts of metrics. You know, it's like a political campaign, by the way, exactly like a political campaign. They figure out, OK, what's the media market where you're running, in this case, selling books? Um, who are the voters? Uh, what's their uh, demographic makeup? Who's likely to walk into a bookstore? What's likely to attract them to a local bookstore based on local demography, based on your local market? And so they provided us with an opening inventory of about six to 7,000 books. And then the rest were curated. Uh, and so my team and I made our own determinations, uh, what's going to sell. Again, we're really about history and current affairs, but we also need those bestsellers. We need those uh, that new fiction and new nonfiction. We need that romance, those classics. And so we spent time enhancing that initial, uh, that initial inventory. And then we are about to go through a period of experimentation. Uh, we'll kind of gauge what sells, what doesn't. Uh, and then based on the response, we will modify uh, that uh, initial inventory and continue to expand it and improve it so that we're selling books that people want to buy. And we're talking with former Congressman Steve Israel, a longtime Democrat who's just opened a new bookstore, Theodore's, in Oyster Bay, New York. Congressman, how big is your politics section? Uh, I'll tell you, the biggest portion of our bookstore is uh, is our children's section. It's about 40 percent, and that's where the demand is. Uh, you know, I used to say when I chaired DCCC, you meet voters where they are, right? You, so you've got to go to where they are in order to... Uh, to to appeal to them. It's the same thing in, with a bookstore. You've got to meet book buyers where they are. 40% of our inventory will be for children's books. The second largest category would be history and current affairs. So we're very well stocked. Uh, we had Adam Schiff do a book signing here just a few days ago. We're working on having uh, Speaker Newt Gingrich do uh, a remote event with us or a virtual event with us. And so most of our author events will be uh, politics and history, current affairs, uh, those categories would be the second largest inventory and then bestsellers and fiction and uh, all of the other categories that make a small independent bookstore work. Now, you have to go back and talk about why you invited Newt Gingrich to do an author event at your new bookstore. (laughs) Well, uh, we are a relentlessly bipartisan Bookstore. We don't want people reading just on the left side of the book or the right side of the book. We uh, are in business in order to satisfy people's curiosities, uh, to give them perspective on uh, issues that interest them. And so my obligation is to carry everything. Also, to have something in the store that will offend everybody. Uh, and so, and somebody, we had Nelson DeMille. Uh, in a couple days ago, just a prolific and wonderful author of thrillers. 
Uh, and he is fairly conservative. And while he was in the store, Congressman Adam Schiff was actually shopping uh, from our shelves because he had just done a bookstore. And somebody said to me, you know, Congressman, um, you're, you've done a very good job of, uh, of having books that will offend just about everybody. Uh, and uh, there's something I like about that. You know, I'm no longer in business to be liked. I'm in business in order to satisfy people's curiosities. And so we're, our inventory is going to be broad, deep and balanced. There are two books I want to ask you about and see if you have those in stock. The Global War on Morris and Big Guns. Yes. Well, you know, Peter, you're talking about two books that I wrote. Originally, my intention was only to sell those two books. <laughs> uh, but, but the publishers told me there probably wouldn't be a very big demand for that. Uh, yes. not. Well, the good news is, yes, I have them in stock. The bad news for me is they're on the discount racks. <laughs> Congressman, what's in your front window right now? Oh, gosh, we have uh, a uh, very significant display of Theodore Roosevelt books. And so because of our connection to uh, President Roosevelt and uh, all of the activities uh, that he pursued while he lived in Oyster Bay, uh, our opening window uh, features uh, many, many titles by Roosevelt, about Roosevelt. And then, of course, we have uh, in our uh, window books that just hot off the presses, brand new releases, fiction, nonfiction, and, and uh, bestsellers. So Huma Abedin is coming in for a book signing as well shortly with her new book. Uh, are crowds turning out for these? Are you getting the word out? My gosh, um, the biggest challenge that we had, or the biggest unanticipated challenge that we had, was the number of people who have come in here. We did not open. Uh, we're still in our soft opening. Uh, and so our soft opening has been about four or five days, and we can't keep our front door closed. People are coming in. Uh, while our carpenter was building our shelves, he told me that his biggest complaint was people were coming into a construction zone asking to buy books that hadn't even been delivered yet. So the response has been just crazy. There was a line outside our door uh, the first morning that we were open. Uh, and the addition of Huma Abedin and Adam Schiff and Nelson DeMille and Newt Gingrich is attracting folks not only locally, but to our online presence. So we have a website, uh, theodoresbooks.com. Uh, and so that's just been a constant flow of activity for us as well. Now, Congressman Steve Israel, when you were in Congress, you did write those two novels, but you also founded the Congressional Writers Caucus. What was that or what is that? You know, uh, it was a group, a bipartisan group of members who had a passion for reading and writing. And we would meet in the most beautiful room, in my view, in all of Washington, D.C., the members reading room at the Library of Congress. And we bring authors in and historians uh, and uh, so we had uh, writers of fiction. I had Walter Isaacson come in uh, once and talk about uh, his uh, biography uh, of, uh, I, th I think at the time it was Einstein, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Laura Kearns Goodwin came in and talked to us about uh, her book uh, and or her books. And so it was, I have to say, in a highly polarized partisan environment, it was almost a, a moment of liberation to be able to have members from both sides of the aisle come and just talk about books. And now I get to do this as a career. I can just stand here where somebody comes in and they don't want to talk about Joe Biden and they don't want to talk about Donald Trump. They want to talk about a good history book. 
And what do I recommend? And so I'm having a blast. What do you recommend? Well, uh, I have just uh, finished John Le Carre's book, uh, which uh, I thought was uh, terrific. My uh, his, you know, he he passed uh, some time ago. It's the the last book that he did before passing. Um, I thought uh, it's called Silverview. Very good book. Uh, in terms of history, uh, I'm currently working on a brand new book about Theodore Roosevelt, uh, President Wilson, and Jane Adams, three political leaders leading into World War I, uh, called Approaching Storm. And it's a wonderful treatment of the positioning that these three national leaders took uh, going into World War I. Very, very good book. Theodore's Bookstore in downtown Oyster Bay, New York. Do not call it Teddy's. Is that correct? <laughs> you know, the Roosevelt family is very proud uh, of President Theodore Roosevelt. There's a place across the street from us called... Um, Teddy's Bar and Grill, and the Roosevelt family let me know that as good a place as it is, as good as the food is, they did not appreciate the shortening of Theodore's name. So we are adamantly Theodore's. Well, Congressman Steve Israel, we look forward to visiting you at Theodore's Bookstore in Oyster Bay, New York. Thanks for your time. Congratulations. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, sir. And this is about books. Book TV's look at the latest publishing news and nonfiction books. Here's some books being published this week. In The Chief's Chief, Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff to President Trump, details his experiences during the final year of the Trump administration. Another former Trump administration official, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, discusses how her Christian faith has guided her life and career. Her book is called For Such a Time as This. Also being published this week, In Profit and Punishment, journalist Tony Messenger explores how charging fees for minor criminal offenses impacts poor Americans. In the Churchill Sisters, Rachel Trethaway examines the relationships between Winston Churchill's three daughters, and founder and president of the Media Research Center, Brent Bazell, looks back at his life and career here in Washington. His memoir is called Stops Along the Way. Well, have you ever laid awake at night and wondered which first lady appeared on the Mary Tyler Moore show or which president hunted rats in the White House? Or more importantly, which former U.S. president is a national hero in Paraguay? Well, the answers to all those questions are in this book, The Great American Political Trivia Challenge, 2,175 Trivia Questions from American Politics, Past and Present, Rich Rabino is the author. He joins us from Marblehead, Massachusetts. Mr. Rabino, how did this project get started? Well, it really got started when I was probably about nine years old, and I actually started watching C-SPAN. I'm kind of a congenital political junkie. I don't know where it kind of formulated. Um, for some reason, I just kind of had this gravitational pull to it. I had this interest specifically in kind of the minutia, the facts, and it was interesting. So I, so I became a political author. The first book I wrote was about... Um, little known facts in American politics. Then I did a book tour and people asked me about quotations. So I did a book about political quotations in American politics. Then I did one that was kind of all encompassing, but I was really looking for kind of a political trivia book just to buy. And all I could find were presidential trivia books and many were just question, answer, question, answer. So I came up with the idea. I have all this information kind of inside my head. And I want to put it together in some sort of a trivia game, but also one where you can learn something. So it's educative 
as well as interesting. So, you know, I bet 21,705 uh, words, uh, questions later, I put them all together and kind of amalgamated anything that I could think of. And I also use kind of, it was interesting, you go back and you think about all that, you think about all this, all what you think you know, and you can go back to the primary sources and you go back to one primary source and you say, oh, this happened as well, this happened as well, this happened as well. And pretty soon you get seven more questions out of it. Now, is this a full-time job for you writing political books? Yeah, right now, and I also do some uh, analysis and some and some speaking as well. Now, Mr. Rubino, you mentioned watching C-SPAN at nine years old. However old you are now, are you still watching C-SPAN? <laughs> yeah, I'm 43 years old, and it, it was interesting. Once I got once cable uh, came to my municipality, I just started watching it. It just became almost an addiction, as they say. It's just this you know gravitational pull you have, and you just want to get as much information as possible. And it actually is educative, but it's also entertaining and I really enjoy it. How did you find out that Rutherford B. Hayes is a national hero in Paraguay? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because if you go to Paraguay, actually he's pretty much a household word. I don't know exactly where I found out, but if you find out Rutherford B. Hayes, there's very little information about him in the United States. Um, as a matter of fact, if you go to his birthplace in Delaware, Ohio, it's actually a gas station. His actual house has been torn down. But in terms of Paraguay, what happened when he was president, part of this was the secretary of state. It wasn't something he was necessarily active in. At least all records show that. But there was an agreement between Argentina and Paraguay. And Paraguay garnered about 60% of the land that it has today. And Hayes is really credited with that. So in, so if we go down there and there's actually a national holiday for him. There's a postage stamp for him. Um, there's a villa for him. There's actually a scholarship to Ohio Wesleyan University in Delaware, Ohio, where Rutherford B. Hayes was actually um, born. And there was a reality TV show where the winners actually got to go to uh, got to go to Fremont, Ohio, to visit the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library and Museum. That the contrast is fascinating. And another fact, by the way, kind of interesting, is Rutherford B. Hayes was the only president ever born in Delaware, Delaware, Ohio. <laughs> so, Mr. Rubino, when you put this book together, first of all, is it self-published? Yes, it is. And what's that process like for you? Yeah, it's interestingly. So there are definitely pros and cons for it. Um, the main pro is you have editorial discretion in terms of the order that you want to put it. The con is you have to do a lot of the promotion yourself. Um, I've had used publicists for past books. This one, I'm basically using a lot of contacts that I made to promote it myself. But basically, you just you pretty much write it and then you do all the editorial discretion, you do your own editing yourself, and then it's pretty much um, ready. But you use a company called CreateSpace, which is a subsidiary of uh, Amazon.com. And then you go out and you get endorsements for the back. So it's just basically, you know, you, it's basically you write a book yourself, you publish it yourself. And then if you don't have an actual publicist, then you promote it yourself as well. Well, I, just one more piece of self-serving news. You dedicated it to C-SPAN. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I think that's probably unprecedented. I don't know of anybody else who's done that. But I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, should I dedicate it to an individual? And I thought, well, where did my interest in politics, political minutia, come from? And I thought to myself, coming home from school, particularly actually starting on snow days, and coming in and watching C-SPAN, and then I remember, for example, you know, all the times I spent watching special orders, for example, some of the interesting speakers that I would watch in the House. I remember watching, you know, some members, you get more of a pull toward than others, for example. I remember you know, watching Gene Taylor of Mississippi come on and talking about the budget deficit. And he had a very charismatic way of speaking about it. And I kind of had an interest and I would listen to him speaking. I would listen to, they'd have other blue dogs on talking about this type of stuff. So then I was also thinking about how much time I spent, you know, just going through the kind of the C-SPAN archives kind of as a hobby. 
And it's just fascinating how much you actually find out that you net stuff that's just kind of lost to history. You know, you go back, for example, um, I remember I remember I was watching a, a speech Michael Dukakis made when Bob Dole and George H.W. Bush were running for the Republican nomination. And this is just some of the kind of the great lines you hear sometimes. And I was listening to Dukakis specifically, and he started the speech. He said, you know, Bob Dole says that George H.W. Bush isn't much of a leader. George H.W. Bush says Bob Dole isn't much of a leader. Well, this time, I actually agree with both of these two guys. Neither of them is much of a leader. And I thought, you know, that's just kind of a great line. And I think you can only find that through C-SPAN. So I really would not have had this book had it not been for C-SPAN. So I thought it was obviously kind of appropriate to uh, dedicate it to C-SPAN. Well, something I've never said out loud is my favorite part of watching uh, C-SPAN is during a Senate vote. You get to see all the interactions on the Senate floor, and that's a lot of fun to watch. I, I spend hours watching that, I'm afraid. In the Great American Political Trivia Challenge, you have a whole section on political insults. Yes. Why did you include that? Because I just find them absolutely fascinating. You know, politicians um, are very good in terms of being able to somehow, sometimes to be very creative in terms of the way that they insult people. I find that fascinating. There's also some overlap between that and presidential campaigns. Like I remember, for example, watching the House one time and Marion Barry, um, a congressman from Arkansas with a very, uh, you know, a Southern accent, deep as molasses, gets up there and he was talking about Adam Putnam, a congressman from Florida. And he was talking, he, he basically said that Adam Putnam had mischaracterized his view on the budget. So he gets up there and he calls him, you know, he says, this howdy duty looking Nimrod. And I said, wow, you know, that was said on the House floor. He didn't go after his actual, he didn't go after his name, but he actually went after him because of, you know, kind of he comparing him to howdy duty. And I thought, that is extremely creative. And then I thought I'd go back to someone like, um, you know, Gene Taylor in Mississippi, someone who's, you know, really was someone who's kind of overrated, I think, for his rhetorical flourishes. The Americans for tax reform um, said that he had supported the that he had supported the Affordable Care Act. And he comes back and he gives a statement and he says um, he calls them, you know, lying sacks of scum. And I thought, wow, you know, a politician said this. But, you know, it's interesting with insults. I also think they can be very underhanded. For example, Jesse Jackson was running in 1984. He didn't specifically go after Malter Mondale, who was from Minnesota and who was a front runner. But he was talking about Hubert Humphrey. Hubert Humphrey, the former vice president, ran for president in 1960, 68, actually briefly in 52 as well, and then in 1972. And he said something to the effect of, you know, Hubert Humphrey was the greatest, was the only real progressive leader who ever came out of Minnesota. So obviously you put two and two together and you figure out, oh, he's trying to go after uh, Walter Mondale, but he's kind of trying to do it somewhat underhandedly. And you thought, wow, that was really kind of a great line. So I think that insults are really something, you know, no matter what side you're on, it's something you can really kind of appreciate the way politicians are able to insult some. Now, sometimes it can be just an impish, you know, first grade sophomoric insult, but other times it can be something that's really creative. And you say, wow. Rich Rabino is the author of this book, The Great American Political Trivia Challenge, available online. Mr. Rabino, thanks for spending a few minutes with us on About Books. Thanks. It was great to be on the, 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 uh, the station that I dedicated the book to. Well, as 2021 wraps up, the annual lists of notable books are starting to emerge from publications such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Here are some of Amazon's notable nonfiction titles of this year. Atlantic staff writer Clint Smith looks at the legacy of slavery in America and how it's impacted history and how the word is passed. In Beautiful Country, Chian Jolie Wong reflects on her journey as an undocumented child in America. Anna Malika Tubbs explores the impact that the mothers of James Baldwin, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X had on their son in The Three Mothers. 
And in Travels with George, Nathaniel Philbrick examines George Washington's presidency by retracing his journey through the New Republic. And New Yorker staff writer Patrick Radden Keefe reports on the Sackler family's wealth that was built by the selling of Oxycontin, Valium, and other pharmaceuticals. His book is called Empire of Pain. Well, Patrick Radden Keefe spoke about his book on our author interview program afterwards earlier this year. Here's a portion of that. It's interesting. I mean, that John Oliver line, I think about that all the time that, you know, he said, if you want to do something evil, wrap it in something boring. And I think what he's getting at is that we live in a, in a society where there's a great deal of complexity. And sometimes it's just hard to figure out what's going on with a particular story, particularly, I think, if it intersects with the legal system or the financial system. Um, you know, if you read the coverage in the business pages, sometimes it's a little hard to to kind of see the forest for the trees. And um, one thing I think about a lot as a writer is kind of subverting that, is taking situations that are maybe innately very complex, forbiddingly complex, so complex that, that some readers might just be kind of inclined to check out. And making the challenge for myself, you know, can I turn this into a great story? Is there a way to translate the complexity into a narrative that that has a kind of hook that will grab people. And um, so for me, I, you know, part of the reason I was interested in the Sackler family is I'm interested in family stories. I think family dynamics are interesting. Um, I've written about families before. Uh, but I also thought that this was an opportunity to kind of tell a story that's a story about the opioid crisis, about big pharma, about the, I would argue, the kind of corruption of medicine by money. Um, but tell it in the form of a family saga, you know, something that, that I hope is, is pretty approachable, um, both for people who may have been touched by the opioid crisis, may have some personal prior connection to this, or also for people who, who don't, you know, who don't, who've never read an article about the opioid crisis, don't feel like um, you know, there, there aren't that many people who aren't directly or indirectly touched at this point, but, but, but they're out there. And um, I wanted to try and find a way to engage those people as well. And that was Patrick Radden Keefe on Afterwards earlier this year. You can watch all previous episodes of Afterwards at our website, booktv.org. And it's also available as a podcast at C-SPAN Now, our app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally tonight, here is the best-selling nonfiction books currently at Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., a place where we often cover author events. Topping the list is archaeologist David Wengro and the late anthropologist David Graeber's critical look at the development of human society in the dawn of everything. That's followed by Betrayal, ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl's report on the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. And there are two memoirs on the best-selling list at Politics and Prose, both by actors, Cal Penn's You Can't Be Serious and Stanley Tucci's Taste, My Life Through Food. And wrapping up our look at P&P's best-selling nonfiction books is journalist Stephen Roberts' tribute to the life and career of his late wife, Cokie Roberts. And that's a look at this week's publishing news and the latest nonfiction books. Thanks for joining us on About Books. 
About Books is a podcast, and it's available at C-SPAN Now, which is our new app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.